Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Sassy Speculum podcast, our all-inclusive women's health podcast written by and for women who want to learn more about their bodies and minds but don't necessarily have a medical background. Because everyone deserves to learn about their bodies, and gatekeeping of medicine happens in our crazy world. So I'm here to dispel any myths, break down barriers, and encourage you to advocate for your own health when necessary. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm a naturopathic doctor in the Portland, Oregon area. I'm a primary care doctor who specializes in women's GI and hormone health. You can go to www.sassyspeculum.com to learn more about my practice and the podcast. Please also rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. This helps to get the podcast out to more and more people. It was also brought to my attention after the special Halloween episode two weeks ago that I have a tendency to say the phrase, as always, on repeat. While I can't go back to previous episodes and change this, I'm going to make a conscious effort to not say it 12 billion times each episode. And if you're ever bored on a weekend night, listen to a past episode and turn it into a drinking game every time I say it, because why not? (laughs) As I mentioned last episode, after this one, I am moving to a once-monthly episode instead of once every two weeks. With the change in my schedule, it has just become impossible to produce two episodes a month, and hopefully at some point I'll be able to return to that twice-monthly episode's But for right now, y'all just gonna have to deal. Sorry. And last but not least for housekeeping stuff, nothing that I or my guest say today is medical advice. Please always consult your own doctor before making any changes to your health regimen. We are both doctors, but we are not your doctor. So we can't make recommendations for your specific health situation. And that brings me to the guest that I have here today. I am here today with Dr. Victoria Scott, who is a urogynecologist and fellowship-trained female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgeon with a private practice in Los Angeles, California. After her fellowship training, she joined the faculty at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, where she was the director of education for their female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery fellowship training program and a part of their urology residence training program as well. She has dedicated her research and time to improving the quality of care delivered to women with urinary tract infections, prolapse, and incontinence, and her current efforts are aimed at better educating primary care providers in the treatment of female pelvic floor disorders to further improve the care of women with these conditions. She has had peer-reviewed research published multiple times and presented her research at numerous national conferences. Most notably for this episode, she co-authored a book with two other urogynecologists, Drs. Jennifer Anger and Karen Eiber, called A Woman's Guide to Her Pelvic Floor, What the F is Going On Down There. I can truly recommend this book to pretty much all adult women. The three authors of this book operate from a similar point of view that I do, and therefore the Sassy Speculum does, where they've seen firsthand how ill-equipped women are educationally for the transitions to different life stages. And this book brings women quality knowledge about what the F is going on down there. And as stated at the end of the book introduction, with knowledge comes power. And that's the real purpose of this book and the podcast, women empowering themselves. There isn't a one-size-fits-all handbook that every woman receives once they reach puberty like a Hogwarts letter. There's at the same time not enough information and way too much information, and how is one supposed to know what to believe? 
This book lays out the information in an easy-to-understand language so that women of all ages can find out what is actually going on down there and the whys and hows of it happening. Our society makes women feel insecure and unsure if what they're experiencing is wrong or just something that they have to accept as part of being a woman. Of which I can confidently say that there is absolutely nothing that you just have to accept as part of being a woman, and you should run from anyone who tells you differently. With that said, everyone please welcome Dr. Victoria Scott. So I'm here today with Dr. Victoria Scott, and I just want to start off by saying how much I loved your book. I really loved that it was written from like a patient-centered point of view. This is something that I really strive to achieve with the podcast and also with my practice, because I feel like there's a lot of like medical gatekeeping, just because doctors don't take the time to explain what's actually going on inside of our bodies. And it seems like education is a really big piece of your practice as well. Yeah, thank you so much. No, that's absolutely what inspired us to write the book. Just seeing so many women in our clinics as urogynecologists with pelvic floor issues who are scared, ashamed, embarrassed. Um, And really, we cure most of that with just a little bit of knowledge. So maybe they walk out without even like clear treatment plan, but just that knowledge and they're like so much happier. Yeah. And knowledge that like what they're going through is actually really common. Yeah, no, that's so true. Just that reassurance. You're not alone. Talk to your girlfriends, your moms, your daughters, and you're going to find out that you can give each other so much more support by being open. Was there anything specific that you can remember that made you realize like how little women were being educated about their bodies? That's a good question. I don't think I could pinpoint like a specific encounter, but I think it was just like a point visit after visit after visit after visit with women being again, like I said, just so worried and scared. Like for example, one common scenario where I see with so many women with pelvic organ prolapse, for example. So like when the pelvic floor muscles weaken and this it's kind of like a hernia that allows the bladder, the uterus or the rectum to kind of bulge out of the vagina. And it's kind of scary to all of a sudden feel your vagina and feel this like lump hanging out. Some women even describe it as like a bowling ball or, you know, an orange or something heavy. And so, and this is really common, as you know. And so I see so many women who come in and they're so afraid and they're like, I'm not that bothered, but please just tell me I don't have cancer or something bad going on. So I think it's just so many instances like that where I just have to, again, say, hey, this is so common and they're they're so relieved. I think it's just, it makes me so sad to think for how long they were scared and nervous about it before they actually came in. I can't even imagine what that's like. I'm sure someday I will. Um, (laughs) But I can't imagine what that's like to just like reach down and be like, oh, what is this? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it's true. So that kind of like jumps in. Let's just kind of do a, a quick overview of like what the pelvic floor is. Great, great idea. So the pelvic floor is the hammock of muscles that support the pelvic organs. Um, So it's muscles and connective tissue, actually. And they support the urethra, the bladder, the vagina, the uterus, and the rectum and surrounding intestines for women. Um, So they provide, the pelvic floor provides a supportive role, but also a functional role. So it helps to make sure that you can hold your urine, your stool, and then release it at appropriate times, and also helps support pregnancy and then allows the baby to pass out of the vagina. And then finally, sexual function. Um, 
They, the pelvic floor muscles are play a big role in your ability to have pleasurable, pain-free sexual intercourse. Thank you for that. It's often we hear that our pelvic floor muscles could tighten or that we're too loose down there. Um, and we're told to do kegels to fix that. How common do you see it that our pelvic floor muscles are actually like the other way and they're actually way too tight? That's that's a really good point. I feel like it's a really unknown kind of condition that you bring up pelvic floor hypertonicity or tension in the pelvic floor muscles. And this is really important for women who are having pelvic pain issues because um, they might hear, oh, it's you know, a pelvic floor problem. And well, what do you hear about pelvic floor kegels? Exactly like you say. And you can actually make things a lot worse if you have tight pelvic floor muscles by doing kegels. It's pretty common, um, I think, across all women, and then especially in women with any type of pelvic pain. So that might be like a gynecologic origin, endometriosis, maybe a GI or gastrointestinal issue like IBS, or a bladder pain or a vulvar pain. Even though the pain might not originate necessarily in the muscles, oftentimes you have, with any kind of pain in the pelvis, you start to carry around a lot of tension in the pelvic floor. So the same way that like some people carry a lot of tension and stress in their neck muscles, a lot of women will carry it in that pelvic floor. And so you have pain that originates in one organ, but then it really can kind of create the snowball effect where now you're having so much more pain because your pelvic floor muscles are really tight. Mm -hmm. So in that setting, as you say, you know, Kegels or pelvic floor muscle strengthening is definitely what we don't want to do. And for that, I would definitely recommend a pelvic floor physical therapist to help work on relaxing the pelvic floor muscles. A, A difficult scenario is a woman who has pelvic pain with pelvic floor hypertonicity, but then also weak muscles. And so that's a situation where, again, definitely working with a pelvic floor physical therapist is going to be best because they're going to help coach you on kind of the best approach to help relax, but then strengthen in the most appropriate way. Is there anything equivalent to a Kegel that women with hypertonic pelvic muscles could do? That's just like a cross the board recommendation. I would say for women with hypertonic pelvic floor, the more of the relaxing exercises are the most important. So one that I like to coach patients through is diaphragmatic breathing. And any kind of exercise where you just take a little bit of time every day to focus on breathing, I think is good for so many other reasons. But with diaphragmatic breathing, you're really focusing on um, relaxing those muscles by when you inhale, trying to expand your abdomen as opposed to the chest. So a lot of You can look it up online, but they're really good instructions on how to put like one hand on your chest and one hand on your abdomen. And as you inhale, focus on expanding the abdomen and then exhaling, you feel your abdominal hand going down. And that's one like great place to start for just helping to relax those pelvic floor muscles. It's also important, I think, to think about your relaxing the pelvic floor muscles at appropriate times. Um, So for example, like when you're peeing or having a bowel movement, oftentimes we're like rushing or maybe like hovering over a toilet or straining too hard. And so this is another area where you really want to focus on when you're trying to pee or have a bowel movement, you have to relax. So taking your time, actually sitting on the toilet, even though that may gross some people out in the public restroom, like hovering really prevents you from relaxing appropriately or using like a squatty potty or something like that. So those are other kind of tools to help relax the pelvic floor. I mean, let's see. So some other things, if you want to keep talking about hypertonic pelvic floor, because I do think this is a great topic for women 
um, with pelvic pain, because again, we just don't know much about it. Seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist, I would say uh, number one, but then also making sure that you are seeing a urogynecologist or someone with specialty in pelvic floor, because I mean, I can't tell you how many patients I've seen where you know, they've really been kind of dismissed almost, I think mostly because their doctors don't really know how to manage um, their symptoms appropriately. So definitely find yourself a urogynecologist or someone with specialty training in the pelvic floor, because there are other things we can do. Pelvic floor muscle relaxants or suppositories that you can put in the vagina or the rectum. We can do trigger point injections, injecting a Botox or a local anesthetic into specific muscles to help them relax. So we definitely have other tools I think could be really helpful. That's great. And the Eurogyne side does a little bit more of that medical management, whereas the PT will do the exercise. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's it, that's another good point. Like you almost kind of need a team. So it's like, you know, you need your public floor physical therapist, your Eurogynecologist, maybe you need like a, a GI doctor, your primary doctor. So everyone's kind of focusing on helping um, each different organ system involved in the pain. Yeah, absolutely. I think that all medicine is better with a team. Yeah, totally. For women who have had a vaginal birth and have heard that pelvic floor therapy is the next step for them, do you agree with that? Do you think that it's better before birth or only? Yes, absolutely. So I know, and there are other countries, for example, France, where pelvic floor physical therapy is prescribed to every woman after vaginal delivery. And I think we're so, in the U.S., we're so far behind on that because we don't provide women with enough education. I think even before pregnancy is is fantastic, too. It's kind of like, you know, when you're having a knee replacement, they're realizing, hey, if you start the PT ahead of time, it really improves outcomes. And then you do it afterwards as well. So same thing with the pelvic floor muscles. I think if you kind of start it ahead of time, then you're aware of things you can do during pregnancy, the Kegel exercises, the preventing constipation, you know, all these things that can really help the incontinence, the hemorrhoids during pregnancy, and then afterwards and speed your recovery along and hopefully prevent the issues 10, 20 years down the road. For pelvic floor physical therapy, so how do you get in? Definitely ask your OB for a referral, you know, so that could be even at like your six-week checkup. I think a lot of women are kind of shocked when they like see their OB for their six-week checkup and they're like, okay, you're great, bye, you know, everything looks good, see you in a year or two. And it's a little scary because they're like, well, I do not feel okay. There's still a lot going on. And so that's another time where, you know, reassurance that everything you're going through is is really normal, I think is helpful. And then again, getting plugged in with someone who's really going to help coach you through that recovery process because it is pretty significant and not something we're really prepared for. Definitely not prepared for it. And I think so many women are just left on their own, like you said. For this next question, I asked Dr. Scott if she ever works with patients with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. For those of you who don't know, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or EDS, is a connective tissue disorder often causing hypermobile or flexible joints, stretchy, fragile skin, and blood vessels that lack tone and strength. Ligaments and tendons are made up of connective tissue, and EDS causes this tissue to become very lax very easily. You can imagine if someone has an issue with their loosey-goosey ligaments and tendons, that their pelvic floor, which is partly made up of ligaments and tendons, would also be pretty loosey-goosey especially with pregnancy. Kind of goes into the pregnancy aspect of pelvic floor. Have you ever done much work with Ehlers-Danlos patients to help either protect or recover ligaments, I guess, either during or after pregnancy? 
That's a really good question. I definitely have some patients with Ehlers-Danlos with prolapse issues due to increased laxity. I definitely have found a number of them with more pelvic pain issues too. And it's something I think we should study more because in talking to a few colleagues, they find the same things. And I don't think we have, you know, great tools for them other than just, as you mentioned, making sure they're with pelvic floor PT for like their entire life. (laughs) There may be a role for these patients for recommending um, like an elective C-section as well to try to prevent too much pelvic floor, like laxity from actually delivering vaginally. So definitely things, you know, if you do have any kind of connective tissue disorders to talk to your OB about. That's a really good idea because I feel like a lot of people at least the people I've met with Eller Stanlos don't really know who to talk to when it comes yeah. to things. I think a lot of people are just told physical therapy, go for it. Um, and I don't think that actually getting the help prior to pregnancy is common. Yeah. And being yeah, told no. that an elective C-section is an option. Yeah, you're right. It's more, there's again, like not enough focus on the prevention and education and only like, well, okay, now you have the prolapse and we'll yeah. fix it for you. Now let's fix it. Yeah. How do you feel about those like cell phone app games that you can do kegels with? So like the actual devices or just the... Yeah, like the devices that then you can see on your phone. Like how Yeah, I think that, you know, anything that will get women kind of to do the exercises and keep doing them is helpful. We don't really have any good evidence that the devices themselves are going to be better than, you know, just going to a pelvic floor physical therapist, learning and doing them on your own. But I think that could be one area where it's helpful in just kind of keeping you accountable um, and reminding you to do them. Because I see so many women who are like, oh, I tried Kegels once or twice and they didn't work for me. And I'm like, okay, well, we got to keep doing them as with any exercise. Right. It's not like you go to the gym once or twice and it works. Yeah, yeah. You're like, where are my muscles? (laughs) (laughs) Moving on from pregnancy and talking a little bit more about like urinary incontinence. I have found, and I'm sure you have as well, that so many women just accept incontinence um, like as the norm once they reach a certain age or have had children. I hear so many patients say like, oh, well, I just like because I had three kids, that's why I have incontinence. Like no big deal. But like, why do you think that is that that is the norm? Yeah, we see that so much where they think it's just something. Well, like you say, I have three kids. I just have to live with that. Right. Um, I guess it's probably a lack of just knowledge uh, that there are options that they don't have to live with it. And I always tell my patients, well, the good news about your incontinence is you're right. It's not dangerous. So if it's not bothering you, then we absolutely don't need to add more medications or procedures onto your plate. But the most important thing, again, is just that you have the knowledge that we can do things about it and you don't feel like there's nothing we can do about it. So it probably gets brushed under the table a lot because it's not like, you know, diabetes or high blood pressure or something where, you know, it could be very dangerous. And then again, in like a 10 or 15 minute, you know, regular appointment with your primary doctor, it's like definitely going to fall at the end. So Mm -hmm. it's unfortunate, but hopefully women start to learn, you know, as we spread more awareness and knowledge that we have really good options, medications, and procedures to help. And would you recommend referrals to urogynecologists for that? Yeah, I think that as in the primary care level, at least, of course, checking a urinalysis, ruling out UTI or other things, reviewing medications with patients, and then a pelvic exam, it's kind of tricky for a lot of primary care doctors, I think. But if they can, or at least making sure they've seen a gynecologist in the past year or so, 
And then classifying at least stress versus urge incontinence versus mixed incontinence. Mm -hmm. So I guess I should back up, but I think um, for incontinence, it's important for all women to know and even doctors out there who may need a refresher. Stress incontinence is more that leakage with like laughing, coughing, sneezing, activity related, weakening the pelvic floor muscles that aren't supporting the urethra adequately. Urge incontinence is more that leaking on the way to the bathroom. I can't quite make it in time. And then mix is when you have both. And so it is helpful. It's pretty easy with a few questions or a quick questionnaire at the primary care level for doctors to just figure out what type of incontinence it is and then start with the basic behavioral modifications. So hopefully if you have your incontinence, you bring it up to your primary doctor, they can kind of get you started on like the first steps. And then absolutely, if you're not happy, then asking for that referral to like a urologist or a urogynecologist who can help with the other thing, the next steps. Um, I saw that you've also done a lot of work with recurrent UTIs. Can you tell me like a little bit more about the research that you've done? And Yeah, absolutely. So this is another area where it's, you know, mostly women, of course, some men get UTIs, um, but mostly women and get them. And they're so common. It's another thing that I think a lot of women are like, yeah, well, I have UTIs, but we all do, right? And kind of, again, um, just don't really seek help or try to figure out how we can help prevent them. And so we, my colleagues and I in, let's see, residency or fellowship, we were inspired to look more at patient perspectives on recurrent UTIs and the treatment that they get. Because although there was a population of patients who were like, yeah, this is just something I have to deal with, we were starting to see so many women who were angry and scared because they felt like they really weren't being addressed. And each time they had UTI, they were just being thrown antibiotics and, and not really trying to figure out, hey, what's going on? Why am I getting these? How do I prevent them? So um, one study we did was to look, again, at the patient perspectives with focus groups. And that was really interesting because it did really drive home the fact that while patients do want immediate treatment um, of antibiotics, a lot of women said, well, please don't just throw antibiotics at me because I, I do really understand you know, the negative side effects. So I think this was important to kind of put in the literature to remind doctors, you know, when, you're, when you get that phone call from the patient, don't just send antibiotics, make sure they come in, test the urine, and you're actually, you know, figuring out each time, is the UTI or not? And you're tracking what's growing to, to really help get to the root cause of things. So that was kind of like a patient's perspective, qualitative study. And then a few, I've done some more like kind of lab research too, and helping improve like diagnostics and things like that. How often do you find that it's not actually a UTI with the recurrent? That's a really good question. I mean, it's it's not uncommon, especially when you see that woman, you know, maybe you have someone who has had a UTI in like 20 years and they call and they're like, I know it's a UTI, please just send, mm -hmm. send antibiotics. Okay, yeah. that's, that's pretty common. And all the guidelines say, well, just give them the antibiotics. But when you start to see the patient who's like, I have UTI, next month I have one again, next month I have one again, what may have started off as UTI may be developing into more of like an interstitial cystitis picture or a bladder pain that's not due to infection. So a lot of these women are getting so many courses of, of unnecessary antibiotics. Or maybe it's not even, you know, the bladder that's that's causing the pain. Maybe it's like more of a uterine pain or endometriosis or something like that. So I think it is really, really important to keep testing the urine to make sure, avoid unnecessary antibiotics and make sure you get the correct diagnosis. I've seen so many doctors, they'll test the urine and it'll still come back clean and they'll still give antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And, and then so... continue to keep doing that for the same patient, right? 
so frustrating. And I, to be on the patient side of that is even more frustrating than watching it happen. Yeah, yeah. So another place where, you know, just that little bit of general knowledge for women can help them say, well, hey, what about the culture? Or just kind of to get that terminology down. Is there anything else that women can do to advocate for themselves to not just be handed antibiotics? That's a good question. I think that if you find yourself developing recurrent UTIs, which we define as three or more per year or um, two or more over six months, then definitely getting a referral. So your primary doctor may not necessarily be kind of tracking all your infections or it may not come to their mind to send you to a urologist or your gynecologist. But I think that's really important so they can help look at your anatomy, make sure that there's nothing wrong with your kidneys or your bladder, and then also spend maybe that little bit of extra time to talk about prevention because that's another thing that primary care doctors probably don't you know, necessarily have the time to really focus on. But, you know, we can prevent a lot of of UTIs by making sure, well, is she drinking enough water? If she's postmenopausal, maybe adding vaginal estrogen or other things that can help. Great. Thank you. And one of the main purposes of the Sassy Speculum podcast is to help women have the knowledge of their own bodies so that they can advocate for themselves. So it's a really important piece, I think, with healthcare and our shitty medical system. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I saw it in your book. I have it right here next to me. Um, There's this picture that shows it's on page 59. It shows the bladder filling and then like the first sensation to void. And it's kind of a cycle of how the bladder works and urination works. And I, this is kind of a personal question um, just for my own knowledge, but it says like first the bladder fills and then there's the first sensation to void and then a normal desire to void and then micturation. My question is with that first sensation to void, like if I get that and I'm lazy and I don't want to get up, is that just because my brain is like, I'm not ready to pee yet and it's waiting for it to fill up more and I'm not actually being lazy? (laughs) That's a good question. Okay, so you get that first sensation to pee and you're like, oh, I don't quite want to get up yet. Yeah, I think that's normal because it's normal. A normal pattern is to kind of have that gradation and, and, and sensation of severity and how full your bladder is. So and that's one of the things that we look for in like your dynamics testing when we're doing special bladder function testing is when do you feel your first sensation or your first desire? When do you feel your strong desire? And then when are you full? So I think that's definitely normal um, for your brain to kind of acknowledge that but say, hey, I still have time. Um, and then once you feel that like really strong desire, you're like, oh, now I really need to go. Okay. Patients with overactive bladder though, oftentimes, you know, they get that first desire and then all of a sudden they're peeing their pants or leaking. And so that's where the impaired sensation and function can come in for those patients. Okay. And what causes that? I mean, I know there's a, a million reasons, um, but for overactive bladder, what's like the most common cause of that? So as you point out, it's usually... I tell patients multifactorial. I would say, you know, the biggest causes being, number one, pregnancies and deliveries, even though that was a long time ago, weakening of the pelvic floor muscles, any prior pelvic surgeries can certainly contribute, and then hormonal changes being maybe pregnant, perimenopausal, menopausal, postmenopausal, those can all contribute. Sometimes if you have a neurologic condition, um, that would be the other main thing that can that can contribute to an overactive bladder, which would be peeing too often, peeing with a really strong urgency, or leaking on the way to the bathroom. That's all of the questions that I have for you today. 
I'm really excited that I got to talk to you today. When your cousin connected us to work together, I had no idea that I was going to be talking with somebody like in the traditional medical field who has the same goals and patient-centered approach that I do. I think that that's kind of rare. Yeah, um, yeah, no, it's it's awesome. I I was able to do a little bit of research on you, but can you tell me a little bit about more about your practice? Yeah. Um, so I'm a naturopathic doctor and I do primary care, but I'm specializing in women's health, specifically GI and hormone health. I'm doing lots of GI functional testing and then also treating lots of like endometriosis and PCOS hormonal issues that interact with the GI and the endocrine system specifically. Yeah. So you're basically like pelvic, you're like the medical side of pelvic health, but like more comprehensive than just like a gyne or a GI. That's awesome. Yeah. So do you, for example, like for menopausal women, do you provide, do you prescribe HRT? I do. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely, I feel like we need so many more doctors who are like comfortable providing hormone therapy. Um, and then like in your practice, probably also having the time to focus not just on like hormones. Cause I was just thinking about this where we're shifting more. So now fortunately everyone's like, yes, hormones are, you know, there's so much more evidence that they are safe, mm-hmm. but then we also need to like combine the lifestyle component and kind of, you know, like probably more of the functional medicine side where you're like, yes, the hormones are great, but we also need these other components of lifestyle to help you manage the menopausal symptoms and stuff. Yeah. And my visits with patients are between 30 and 45 minutes long. So I actually get time to walk through those lifestyle changes and dietary recommendations and whatnot on top of the hormones, which is really, I'm very, very lucky that I have that opportunity. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for meeting today and getting to be on the podcast. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. I had such a great time chatting with Dr. Scott and reading her book, What the F is Going On Down There, which is purchasable on Amazon. I will share the link on my Instagram for anyone who's interested in purchasing, which I would recommend to each and every one of you if you have made it this far into the episode. Not only does it cover issues that women face throughout their entire life cycle, but it's written in patient-centered language, so it's really, really easy for just anyone to understand regardless of your background. There are a few other things that I wanted to touch on that we didn't get to in the interview. The first is what pelvic floor physical therapy actually is. Some primary care providers will refer their patients for this type of physical therapy, but few actually explain to their patients what it is, and most just assume that it's like a traditional physical therapy. So it's important to understand what's actually going on. This is predominantly an internal physical manipulation of the pelvic floor through the vagina, but external work can be done on the abdomen as well. Your therapist has been trained to stretch and massage these internal muscles and connective tissues and can also assess whether your symptoms are coming from a too tight or a too loose pelvic floor. Either way, they will give you exercises to perform regularly at home to continue the work being done during your appointments. Unfortunately, most of the healing does come from the at-home program, so remembering to do your exercises is really key in seeing benefit. And remember, kegels are shouted from the rooftops as something that every woman should be doing, but there is a significant amount of people who should not be doing kegels because their pelvic floor is already too tight and too strong. Seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist or a urogynecologist will help you to better understand if you're someone who will benefit from kegels or not. A side note, men can also do pelvic floor physical therapy as well, and they benefit significantly from it. 
The external and internal work is very similar. However, it is performed through the rectum instead of the vagina in a male-bodied patient. The second thing I wanted to touch on is the correlation between pelvic floor disorders in women and sexual abuse. We all know that sexual abuse is known to have a long-term impact on women's health and has been associated with irritable bowel syndrome, pelvic pain, pain with sex, and painful bladder syndrome, also known as interstitial cystitis. There has been quite a bit of research discussing the effects of muscle memory and the manifestations of mental and emotional trauma in our physical body. The pelvic floor and abdominal muscles are classic regions where we hold on to stress and tension, in part due to the amount of nerves present in this area. If these muscles are chronically tense, the stretchiness of the muscles becomes decreased, ultimately creating a pelvic floor weakness. Many sexual assault survivors are told that they have hypertonic, which is two tight muscles, that are also extremely weak because of this chronic tension that we hold in our pelvis. Aside from the obvious trauma that can occur in the pelvic floor after a sexual abuse, several emotional and mental coping mechanisms occur, which do directly affect the pelvic and abdominal muscles. As with many chronic pain conditions, in order to survive the day-to-day -day life after abuse, the survivor will often check out from their physical body sensations. This lack of awareness often leads to pelvic pain, urinary or fecal incontinence, incomplete emptying of poop or pee, and abdominal pain. As a survivor myself, I have experienced firsthand the effects that trauma of this nature can have on both physical and mental health, and the idea of a pelvic floor physical therapy session is an absolute no to many survivors, rightfully so. There is a power dynamic that often occurs with doctors, and laying on a cold table with your legs spread wide open and a stranger entering into your body can bring back a lot of triggering feelings. It's very important to find a therapist who you feel comfortable addressing your concerns with and creating a meaningful relationship with them before starting any internal work. There is lots that can be done externally, and you should be in charge of when the therapy moves to internal work. You should never feel pressured to move to internal work until you are ready. If you do, that is not a good working relationship, and there is potential to worsen your symptoms and do more harm. So do what you need to do to get yourself out of that situation. Oregon people, I have pelvic floor physical therapists that I can recommend who are truly wonderful people and doctors if you are looking for a recommendation. Also talk to your primary care provider if they have any people who they know specifically work very well with sexual assault survivors. It is really important to have someone who is trauma-informed. The third thing that I wanted to touch on, and it's a much lighter thing to end on, is the relationship between our pelvic floor and our breath. When I learned about the pelvic floor in school, I was instructed to imagine the abdomen like a soda can. The pelvic floor is just one part of our core, it's the bottom of the can that acts as a bowl full of our organs. The top of the can is our diaphragm, a muscle that contracts and relaxes as we breathe. And the sides of the can are our abdominal muscles in the front and back muscles and spine in the back. Before you pop open the soda to drink, the can is strong and it has significant pressure inside to maintain a nice cylindrical form. Once you open the can, it becomes much more vulnerable to getting dented or bent out of shape. Obviously, you can't open the can of your core and drink what's inside, but instead of opening it up like you're going to drink it, imagine the can getting dinged and damaged so that the pressure no longer can exist inside of it, making that can so much more vulnerable. When one part of the can is too weak or strong, 
It makes it very difficult to keep that pressure inside, leading to other portions having to take over some of the work, which leads to muscle pain, alignment issues, incontinence, and difficulty breathing. But if my pelvis is all the way down there, and my lungs are all the way up here, why are the two connected? The diaphragm is a thin muscle that separates the abdomen from the chest. It's the top of the soda can. When we take a deep breath in, our diaphragm moves down, shortening to allow for the lungs to fill and our tummies should pouch out. As the diaphragm moves down, the pelvic floor should relax and lengthen downward simultaneously in order to make room for your organs that are pushed out of the way with every breath. Then as we exhale, the pelvic floor muscles travel upwards and shorten while the diaphragm lengthens and moves up. Your abdominal organs also move back up to their resting place. The top and the bottom of the can rely on each other to maintain that adequate pressure and the space for all of our organs. With each breath, they are doing the opposite contraction type, but moving in the same direction. So if your pelvic floor is dysfunctional, your breathing pattern will also be dysfunctional, as the two rely on each other to function correctly. That being said, if you have a diaphragm problem, it's likely that you actually have a pelvic floor problem. And if you have bad posture or back pain, you also probably have a diaphragm problem and therefore a pelvic floor problem. It's all interconnected and learning how to both strengthen and relax all aspects of the soda can efficiently is imperative for a stable core. Just remember, if you lose the pressure inside of a can, it's much more vulnerable to damage and the same goes for your pelvic floor. If your pelvic floor muscles are too tight or too weak, the can is not balanced. Okay, if I haven't beaten that horse dead already, reach out with questions and I can try to better explain how interconnected each part of our bodies are. That's all I got for you today. As always, please rate and review the podcast wherever you are listening. You can contact me on Instagram or TikTok at Sassy Speculum or anonymously at my website www.sassyspeculum.com. You can also learn much more about my practice and my podcast on my website, sassyspeculum.com. Also, feel free to email me at sassyspeculum at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys, whether it be questions, concerns, qualms, topic ideas, or just to say hi. I want to hear it all. If you would like to schedule with me, you can book an appointment or a free 15-minute discovery call at www dot one space all spelled out o-n-e-s-p-a-c-e dot com slash contact and of course today's vagina rhyme from my vagina coloring book my vag by margalite cutler is my vag is a scorpion feisty and curvaceous must be approached gently when feeling predacious that's all folks <laughs> bye